0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The central image of our gospel today connects to an image that spans the entire Bible. And that is the image of God drawing near to a city to visit and inspect it. In Genesis chapter 11, the peoples of the world were gathered together to make the great city of Babel, at whose heart was a great tower built to provide a ladder to heaven, which would secure an immortal name for the inhabitants of that city. But the Lord came and saw and visited that city and judged it for its ambition and scattered its inhabitants through the confusion of their languages. In Genesis chapter 18, Sodom and Gomorrah, the great cities that stood on the plain of Jordan, stood frighteningly to all the inhabitants of that region in that time. And it was said among the people who, like, what is so great as Sodom and Gomorrah? But despite All their grandeur within them, there was a corrupting distortion of their passions. Their desires had become evil, and they had begun to do violence to the stranger who came to them seeking help. So the Lord came, and he saw, and he visited those cities, and he found them wanting, and he sentenced them to summary destruction. such visitations however do not always end in destruction if we look in the prophetic book of jonah the great Assy- assyrian city of nineveh is warned through the prophet jonah reluctant as he is that the lord is coming to judge that city he is coming to visit it and that their resp- but their response unlike the cities before them is to repent immediately and to sit in sackcloth and ashes while fasting. As a result, that city, on the day of its visitation, is spared destruction. Together, these examples reveal the nature of this biblical concept called the day of visitation. A recognition and a repentance on that day is the only thing that can turn aside the calamity. Otherwise, destruction awaits as the natural consequence of wickedness and sin. In the later prophets, the examples of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Nineveh become case studies and examples to illuminate the fates of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. In the time of their own visitation, God sends the prophets to reveal what is going on behind the scenes in the spiritual world, even while the politics and the culture of those cities and of those kingdoms is unfolding. The prophet Micah, in particular, reveals that the destruction of the northern kingdom's capital of Samaria came about because the Lord had visited it and had found it unrepentant of idolatry, of abusing power, and of oppressing the poor. Its summary destruction at the hand of the Assyrians and the scattering of the kingdom and its people were the fruit of that failure to return and to turn back in repentance away from these sins. Micah then warns all the cities of the southern kingdom of Judah that Even great Jerusalem at its heart will not be spared a similar fate if it does not repent of its own injustice and the practice of the same sins, turning back in worship to God and care for the stranger and for the needy. The history plays out, though, and Jerusalem does not repent. As the Lord declares to the temple city through the prophet Jeremiah, Has this house, the temple, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. Jerusalem fails its day of visitation, refuses to repent, and then the Babylonian Empire comes through and sacks the city. It is left in ruins, and... All of its inhabitants are carted off or killed, but even in the midst of that that catastrophe, the Lord promises to give a hope of restoration for the kingdom for Jerusalem, his temple city, as the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah, quote, "Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer." Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jerusalem will get a second chance to fulfill its vocation. By the time of Christ, where our gospel unfolds six centuries later, the temple had been rebuilt and stood grander and larger than ever before, enhanced in the meantime by the architectural ambitions of King Herod the Great. And it stood as a towering monument on the high place of Jerusalem, as a monument to the special identity and the religious history of Israel. Unfortunately, in order to complete the building project, this required submission to Rome and playing a very delicate political game with the imperial powers. It required the opening of the promised land to be used and enjoyed by Caesar. And it required the growth of a seedy merchant industry seeking to make money off of religious pilgrims as they came to the temple to pray. Because of this, there were frequent and failed attempts to overthrow Rome, to cast out these occupying forces. All of these attempts were brutally crushed by Rome, and they were, And so the tone of anger and frustration and a sense of oppression grew among the people of Jerusalem, and a similar sense of frustration and intolerance grew by their Roman occupiers the beautiful temple city that was destined and given a vocation to be a house of worship, suddenly became one of traffic with the Romans, became one of violence frequently erupting in the streets. So too, it became a focal point of compromise with the foreign powers that typically brought idolatry with it. The ruling council of the Jews who met in the temple used the temple as a home base to conduct its operation of placating Rome, decrying them to their own people with one voice, while at the same time submitting to them uh, when it was politically expedient. Using Rome as a strongman to enforce their own brand of orthodoxy. This compromise and this inch-by-inch fall into idolatry would enable their joint effort between the council and the Romans to crucify Christ. It would be the conditions necessary to pull that off. And it would be the joint operation that would lead to the persecution of the apostles and their disciples in the book of Acts. Actions that the council meant to secure the peace of Jerusalem, but that ultimately secured its judgment and doom. So in our gospel lesson, when Jesus looks out across the Kidron Valley, he sees a city that is a people of hardened and a deeply divided heart. What was founded to be what this city was meant to be, and what it had failed to become, even given multiple chances to do so, provokes the heart of Christ to mourn over his city. He refers to that city and to its people in maternal terms, wishing to gather them under his arms if they would only recognize and accept him. But he knows what's coming. He knows that they will fail to do this again. As Christ goes into Jerusalem and enters the temple, the house of his father, he finds that the corruption has reached even this very sacred heart of Israel, no longer a house of prayer as it had been declared to be, but instead a den of thieves. The city had been given its life back after the captivity in Babylon, and it had wasted that gift. The cleansing of the temple that we see in our lesson is, as the Anglican theologian N.T. Wright puts it, a symbolic action designed to pronounce judgment on the temple and the temple city. On its day of visitation, Jerusalem again fails the test. And because it was not ready, Jerusalem is stripped of being the dwelling place of God. We see this especially in the work of Pentecost as the Spirit of God descends from heaven into Jerusalem, but not to fill the holy place of Herod's temple, instead alighting upon the apostles and filling them with the Spirit, making them to be the dwelling place of God. As the church in the book of Acts meets with persecution right away and is progressively driven out of the city of Jerusalem, This new temple of God, made so by the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, departs from Jerusalem. Jerusalem eventually will expel all Christians from it, and eventually even the last remnant will be led out through a prophetic warning. And when that happens, Jerusalem is bereft, and its destruction comes soon thereafter at the hand of the Romans, never to recover. Meanwhile, on the Greek mainland near Athens stood the densely populated city of Corinth, established as one of a series of Roman colonies under Julius Caesar himself that was designed to be a kind of gateway chain of cities leading from one end of the empire to the other. They were set up as tributes to Roman grandeur. It was known for being cosmopolitan, for being a competitive, status-obsessed, and modern city. Here, St. Paul established a church on one of his missionary journeys through the region. Yet Corinth was the last place you'd expect a church to thrive. And as you could expect, St. Paul had many troubles with it during his ministry. Writing frequently and fervently to this church, and being fought by them at every turn. In our epistle lesson this morning, he urges the Corinthians to see that the spiritual gifts that had arisen among them were not to be taken as a kind of spiritual status symbol, but rather the spiritual gifts were taken to be signs to assure them that God had sent his spirit among them, that he was dwelling with them, That they had been made something now that they were not before. And that the Spirit was there in their midst to unite them in a mutually edifying community that testified to the truth that God's purpose was to unite all peoples into one body and one family, both Jew and Gentile alike. But St. Paul wants them to see as well that they had been given a privileged status as a temple of the Holy Spirit, that among their gathering and their fellowship, within it dwelt the Spirit of God himself, with all of its attending privileges and with all of its weighty responsibilities. In the backdrop of all of this, in St. Paul's mind, is the whole history of Israel. And it is a reminder that the Lord judges a failure to recognize the awesome privilege it is to be the temple city, to be the temple people. As was the case of the ancient temple city of Jerusalem, a failure in the Corinthian church to recognize and repent when the Lord draws near to inspect and to visit can only result in the removal of the spirit from among them and the ruin of that temple community. We see this action as a real thing in the book of Revelation, which reveals that on the day of Christ's visitation, that this is something that unfolds progressively and also comes at the end with finality. Our Lord sums up this very message in his letter to the Ephesian church in Revelation. Quote, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have had patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The image here reveals that the Lord is always walking among us, that he's always walking among his churches to inspect them, to correct them, to shore them up where they are weak, but to call them with authority to turn back to the thing he instructs them. This image of Christ walking among the churches is one that is behind the backdrop of every church that exists. And it reveals that the Lord will not tolerate our refusal to repent any more than he tolerated the cities of old or even Jerusalem in their failure to repent. The time of visitation is always with us, and it will culminate on the last day when the Lord returns to judge all the fruit that his churches have produced. Every nation, every city, every church, and every Christian will have to render an account face-to-face with Jesus the King in the company of all his saints. This will surely happen. It is coming. And the certainty of that meeting must shape our lives now every moment leading up to it. As we enter this middle season of Trinity, this middle stretch of the Trinity season, our lessons are going to start continually calling us back to this, to a constancy of prayer, which always returns us to this posture we need to have and must adopt as a permanent habit, both now and on the day of our visitation, Constancy of prayer is the only antidote to the spiritual blindness and hardness of heart that causes us to miss the Lord when he draws near to us. But it is the same Lord always. The Lord who walked with Abraham and surveyed Sodom and Gomorrah on the plain. The Lord who walked with the apostles as he lamented over Jerusalem and then went in to judge it. This same Lord walks with us now and among our churches and with every one of us. Every Christian soul is his temple and the gift of his indwelling presence is what it means to have eternal life. But his presence must also always call us to a constant <clears throat> turning, a, turning back and a constant ascent to being conformed to his righteousness, issuing in the fruit of worship and charity. To set forth the praise of God as his people, to testify to Christ before the world, and to minister the gifts and bear the fruits of the Spirit is our continual vocation. It never ends Yet the Lord promises to be among us if we, with humility of heart, will call out to him together for help. He has begun a good work in our midst, and he will be faithful to see it through within us and among us always. So this morning, let us be faithful to him and turn back to him <clears throat> both now in the prayer of Eucharist and in every moment with everything we do. Let us receive him in our hearts and minds as we pray together this morning so that we may testify boldly that God is with us here, giving us the strength we need to go out and proclaim to the world that Jesus is king and that all knees must assent and bow to him. May it be so that on the last day, whether our last day or on the last day, when the King comes to ask us what we have done, we may render a good account and make a good confession, such that our Lord will say to us on that day of visitation, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in little, I will make you ruler over much. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.